It is time for KRWC's Book Club for the month of February. We have a new KRWC Book Club sponsor. Thank you to Haven Books and Gifts. They're at 100 Jefferson Drive in Big Lake, a new source for book club books. You can stop in and browse. Sure to find a a good book. We'll be hearing from them throughout the program today. I am joined by Shelly Garvey in studio. Shelly, good morning. Good morning. I'm just going to say, hey, Karen, because I know she's listening. Oh, well, we, <laughs> that's books. that's one. Anyway, <laughs> good. I'll let you do the honors with our special guest in studio today. Well, we're here with Nate Granzo, uh, the author of Black Cordite White Snow, his brand new book just out. I believe I believe we are kind of... Uh, uh, kind of the beginning of the release. I mean, I know people have been reading it, but this is, uh, you know, kind of the first public showing. We're, and we're still very much in the nascent stages, yes. Uh, <laughs> early just released this, uh, this past weekend. I, I foolishly, arbitrarily set the launch date for Super Bowl Sunday, which mm-hmm. was a catastrophic move on my part. <laughs> From a marketing standpoint, very foolish, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it's been it's been a uh, great uh, great beginning to the whole thing, and you guys have been tremendous and and getting the word out. Now you could have bought an ad in the Super Bowl game. You know, I'm just shy of uh, <laughs> being able to afford that. Yep, it has to be a pretty brief one. I would say. <laughs> I just saw on a uh, on a um, uh, radio website where uh, 4.67 million was a 30 second ad. That's incredible. That is absolutely staggering. <laughs> and what you could buy on radio for that. <laughs> <laughs> you could buy uh, every radio station in the... <laughs> the upper Midwest with that, no kidding. <laughs> and play That's, your ad uh, 24 hours yeah, a day. <laughs> a little rich for my blood, a little rich. Well, Nate is um, a Buffalo resident, yes, and Correct. a native of Buffalo, too. I am, yeah. I am, yep. Uh, moved out of state for a few years and uh, decided to come back. Good, and uh, we talked with you before, and I... I knew we had talked, but it was actually during the COVID deal when uh, we were doing virtually everything on the phone there for about a year and a half. So we have spoken, but not in person. Correct. Get Ediota. Yes. And Faisto's Paradise. That was the the last one. Faisto's Paragon, yep. Paragon, sorry. (laughs) Close, though. Close. They're they're a couple of hard words put together. (laughs) You know, I I like to uh, come up with titles that are a little unorthodox, so that doesn't help. (laughs) Let's just uh, get into the the writing background, what got you to this point, and then we're going to jump into the new book. Sure. Um, I, I've been a, a hobbyist novelist for a number of years and uh, getting progressively more serious about it as the years have gone on. And each one is, uh, each release is a bit of a new adventure. I always try to challenge myself kind of exploring new subgenres and, and uh, approaches that I, I might not be comfortable with. But it's, uh, it's an excellent creative opportunity for me, and I, I enjoy it. And you got into it how? You were in college? Yeah. Correct, correct. Yeah, uh, that was uh, one of the early assignments I received in college was uh, part of a creative writing class that we had to write a novella in its entirety by the end of the semester, which really instilled in me sort of the uh, the regimented that uh, habitual writing, you know, get up early before classes each morning and spend an hour just working on this, this book. And I found that I just really enjoyed it. It, it opened my eyes to... Uh, a different form of creative writing that I had never done before, and and I loved it so much that long after I had graduated, I'd continued on that that path. Were you an avid reader up to that point? Absolutely, too? Yeah. yes. No, that that's uh, since I was a young kid. I mean, that's um, for me. It's it's such a great escape for me, and I feel like it informs uh, your you know your vocabulary and and your worldliness. And I'm a huge champion for for reading in whatever form that may be, whatever genre you're into. 
um, you'll you'll never hear a, a bad word from me about <laughs> whatever whatever avenue you choose. But reading is uh, it's a great outlet. How long uh, the new book again is uh, Black Cordite White Snow. We'll get into all of the uh, the topic information on it. How long uh, was the process on this one? This one took me about a year and a half. And uh, my, my day job has me traveling quite a bit more than I had previously, which actually works to my advantage. So when I'm on an airplane... I make a habit of, you know, instead of watching the in-flight movie, I'll, I'll sit there for three hours and just grind away at writing whatever book I'm working on. So that helped uh, speed things along. But this is uh, this has been my first book back since uh, the COVID days, which COVID really, for some, I think it, it enabled them to uh, write quite a bit more, churn, and churn out quite a bit more because they're trapped at home. They had no place to go, nothing else to do. And for me, for whatever reason, as part of my creative uh, process, it really just stifled it. it. Being trapped at home, I, I don't know if I use interactions with people as you know ways to inform my writing, but I just it came to a standstill. It was as though my my muse had left uh, for a number of years. So this was I've, this was kind of my return, my feeling of actually getting back into the process again and and uh, experiencing that joy in creative writing again. So it's been, uh, but yeah, a year and a half. To, okay. to, from the beginning to the end. Yeah. Talk about the topic of black cordite white snow. This is a little different diversion for you, too. First of all, it's a kind of a period piece. Correct, correct. Yeah, historical fiction, it's uh, a little bit different for me. Um, a little bit different um, as far as uh, what I've written in the past. The uh, What I find so appealing about it, though, that that period in history, the 1920s prohibition, is just such a fascinating time in American history. And I hadn't quite realized just how closely tethered prohibition was to um, to Minnesota in particular. We have a long history with uh, with uh, prohibition as far as like Andrew Volstead was a, a congressman who essentially engineered the uh, the 18th Amendment in the, the Volstead, Volstead Act. Act. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, so that's a direct tie to Minnesota. And St. Paul in particular is a very unique uh, component of that in that they, uh, they had what was known as the O'Connor Layover Agreement. And uh, that was designed by, I won't say designed, but instituted by a man named John O'Connor, who was the police chief in St. Paul at the time. And he essentially looked at this rise in organized crime that was occurring nationwide and saying, well, we can, you know, the old beat them or join them concept, we can either, you know, fight against all this rise in organized crime or we can accept it and, and we can all benefit from it. So what he instituted was this uh, O'Connor layover agreement where if a criminal were to show up in St. Paul, they had three responsibilities, the first of which was to announce their arrival, let the police know that they were there. Two was to pay a bribe, a modest sum, to <laughs> keep the police and uh, and the city council happy, and then agree to not commit any crime in St. Paul proper. If you want to take it next door to Minneapolis, by all means, go ahead. Wow. Uh, you know, if you're going to rob a bank in Nebraska or you were going to commit some other felony up in Duluth, that's fine. Don't do it here in St. Paul. So it, it actually became known as Crook's Haven. It, it had the nickname at the time as Crook's Haven. So... It, just a fascinating backdrop for for a book that I thought, you know, there are local ties. I can go down there and actually do in-person research, which I did. I uh, managed to go down to the uh, the caves 
down in St. Paul uh, where there were speakeasies at one time. They have a whole tour, and there's just a lot of the buildings, the the hotel in St. Paul, I mean, they're still there. It's not quite as it was in the 20s, but, yeah, it's a fascinating premise. Yeah. Shelly, wow. you got all kinds of questions here. Well, so no, I'll I don't. You, I'll I'm, let you I'm fascinated in. because, I mean, uh, that, that whole era, and I'm not all the way through the book, obviously, so uh, I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm just flabbergasted at the history and the fact that there's still, I love the fact that there's, you know, you use real, you know, places. And, and then, you know, after you read the book, then you can go down there and uh, go to St. Paul and go to those places and, you know, I don't know, just look around i i like that idea and uh, i would definitely recommend taking the tour at the wabashaw caves that that's a a fascinating experience very affordable um, but a a very unique environment it's actually they were silica mines at one time and they eventually became a speakeasy and they they had all all number of uh disreputable characters that frequented there and uh yeah i'd recommend that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> didn't didn't realize that now i grew up around the kansas city area didn't realize there was uh there was pl- places as crooked as <laughs> kansas city <laughs> i think it was a, a national phenomenon at that time you know it's uh again speaking to how unique a time that was you had this really unusual dichotomy between having enough uh, support for a constitutional amendment, which meant that there were really truly enough people that wanted to see alcohol made illegal at a federal level to make that happen. But at the same time, it also gave rise to this entire cottage industry of illicit activity, and organized crime was hot on the heels of that. You know, they they saw an opportunity and tremendous amount of money being made uh, with with that. So yeah, really, boot, bootlegging, bootlegging, stuff, yep. Stuff like We're that. gonna come back and uh, develop the uh, the premise of the book a little bit. Nate Granzow is our guest. Uh, his book is Black Cordite, White Snow. We're gonna take a little break. We'll come back in thirty seconds and talk more on the KRWC Book Club. We thank Haven Books for being our new sponsor on the KRWC Book Club. We're back with Nate Granzo. His book is Black Cordite, White Snow. It's a book uh, about uh, some characters, a Minnesota prohibition thriller. We were just about to kind of introduce the characters a little bit, Nate, and tell us uh, the background on what this in- intrigued the, the listeners here with the uh, story. <laughs> this is probably the most challenging part of uh, being an author, I think, is giving delivering a compelling elevator pitch well yeah because you, you've worked a year and a half on it you want to boil it down to yeah just know, a couple of minutes. sentences yep that's that's tough to do but the the general premise is that you have a couple of uh, immigrant brothers who uh, have come from denmark they've come over to the united states and and they have this bright future ahead of them or so they think and they start to realize that uh it, they, they feel a, com- a compulsion to prove themselves as citizens, to become naturalized citizens, be accepted by their countrymen. So they enlist, and when they're in World War One, they realize just how bleak things are for those who would identify as other or who would be viewed as different, you know, and of course having a German-sounding name. They're from Denmark, but having a, Ger- a vaguely German-sounding name 
would, of course, make your countrymen suspicious of you. Doesn't work well for you. No, not really, especially at a time when uh, sentiment toward Germans was at an all-time low. And, uh, and so they start to look at it very um, pragmatically, we'll say, and, and say, how do we secure our futures? How do we look out for ourselves and, and after the war? And being uh, they are gunsmiths during the war, they, they serve in what was known as a mobile, ordinar- mobile ordnance repair unit, which was essentially gunsmiths that drove around and fixed things so they, guns didn't have to go back to the factory to be repaired. And so they have the opportunity to smuggle in gun parts, machine gun parts. They fix them. And, of course, with the rise in organized crime that we were talking about, you have a built-in audience, a customer base, uh, interested in purchasing those guns. So naturally everything goes horribly awry because these aren't, these aren't bad men. The, the, what I was trying to attempt to do here was to show them as ordinary people doing maybe nefarious things for the right reasons. And just seeing how far down the rabbit hole that goes, you know, putting them in an untenable position and seeing what happens as a result. Mm-hmm. Well, and period correct because, um, you know, we were, it was the roaring 20s, but it was very much leading up to a huge crash. And so uh, legit employment was not, um, you know, real easy to come by. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we look back on that time and it's very much a gilded age. On the face of it, you have this cultural transformation, technological transformations that were happening at the time. You know, uh, cars were becoming much more common in households where you could own a vehicle, you could own a telephone. And all the trappings that come from those technological and cultural advancements make it seem as though it was this glorious time in, in our history, which to some extent it was. But then there was also the other side of that, which is there was still immense poverty. There are people who still lived. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not only with the rise of crime, but just those who, you know, were immigrating uh, over that may have faced a completely different existence from others. You know, they they worked in the mines. They worked in uh, lumber yards. They, you know, scraped by. They didn't have indoor heat or indoor plumbing. You know, that, that was not at all uncommon in the 1920s. So my goal with this was to show both sides, to show that, yes, there is that gilded component, the the champagne and the great music and these lofty hotels, but then also reflect that there are a number of people who were just barely scraping by, really, you know, e- just barely eking out an existence that were, you know, they're living that same that same experience or at least that same time frame, but without that same experience. So these are working class guys that get stuck in a kind of shady operation. You got it. You got it. Yep, they're trying to get out of that position by any means possible. And of course, that's never uh, never quite as simple as it may look on paper. So and they find themselves in over their heads. Absolutely, yeah. repeatedly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's uh, and and with some of the other books that I've written, I've noticed that as a common theme is taking. You know, it's very common in the thriller genre, especially to have these these super characters that are untouchable and impervious to pain or anything like that. They've got these backgrounds of whether they're brilliant or athletic or you know whatever super soldiers. These guys are none of that, and not, most of my characters are not. They're they're people that you could potentially know, someone that you could say, you know, that reminds me of a person I've met, and then throw them into a situation that's so truly extraordinary. You start to see the cracks, which I think is really a reflection of human nature. You start to um, uh, connect with or do you kind of see your characters as uh, uh, people that you're connecting with as you're writing them? I, I think that naturally there's an inclination to take my experiences and and 
put them into my writing. I, I think to some extent there are essences of individuals that I've met or people. In this case, um, my great-grandfather was a Danish immigrant who came over around 1914, and within six months of becoming a naturalized citizen, he ended up uh, being conscripted to go fight in World War One. Oh, so he wow. fought in the last few months in, uh, in France. And uh, that was sort of the catalyst. So there is some element of him in these characters. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anything about him, really, and my family doesn't have much on him. He came back and was, you know, he would, there are a few anecdotes he would share, but largely he kept everything to himself. There were no journals. There was nothing to go on. And so I, you know, being a novelist, applying some kind of a creative lens to that and looking at it like, well, what might have he experienced? That's largely what I have in these pages. Are there places, landmarks that we'll recognize, or is this... Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is this is truly... I did my, my best to try to capture what the 1920s St. Paul environment looked like. And uh, and I like I said, I did copious research. I mean, that's that's probably the hardest part about doing any any writing historically is is getting too far down the rabbit hole on research and spending all your time trying to get everything exactly right, which can be... It can inhibit the creative process more than facilitate it. I've found that if you get a little bit too involved in, well, would he have had a telephone? Would he have, well, why didn't he turn the gas on when he came in the room? Simple things like that where you just, it's so far in our past that you almost have to be a little bit of a historian to to be able to do it justice. But you also have to walk that line between it is fiction after all. You know, it, it you get too carried away, and it becomes a little more nonfiction than it maybe needs to be. So mm-hmm. I try to walk that line. But yes, recognizable landmarks, um, the Wabasha Caves, like I said, is a, a great place. That's still you can take a tour of it today. Um, very very fascinating. Um, that entire area south of St. Paul um, has a number of landmarks that are still around. Hmm. Nice. Well, I guess I don't. <laughs> I'm I'm just sitting here listening to you. <laughs> Tell about it. Uh, it's a tough. It's a tough task because we don't want to give away too much of the story, and that's yet fair. you want to get a little bit of taste in there. So. Absolutely, absolutely. I always think it'd be it, it would be interesting if you could be the the proverbial fly on the wall to uh, to go back to not only St. Paul but other cities uh, in the U.S. around this time because it was. Um, no doubt it was uh, could be a dangerous time. I think we've got elements of danger no matter what era that you're in in, in uh, U.S. big cities. But yet there was enough, there was a, a, a fair amount of trust among people. Probably I would, I would dare say more than now among uh, people. And so maybe these situations developed uh, a little more easily than we think. I, you know, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to get political with any of this, but I think that the the rise of uh, communications, the the instantaneous nature of communications today, you know, we we find that we can discover news about any foreign conflict immediately in real time. You can watch videos of the conflict in Ukraine that would never have happened even 50 years ago. Right, and I I do think that if you walk it back before that proliferation of data, just the being inundated with news all the time, having access to all the information at all times. Um, I, I do think there is an element of trust 
a great deal more certainly back then than there was today um, just because there's maybe a, it was a simpler time in the strictest sense and that could be simple to the degree of being naive <laughs> but uh, in some in some respects that might have been preferable to now which is you know it's very easy to become jaded with uh, with everything that we have access to now well that's certainly true I can't, I can't deny that. 50 years ago, I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> wow. Well, as, as I get older... That was only the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's humbling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Publisher, where we can get the book, all of that, where we go for it. Yep. So if you prefer eBooks, uh, it's available on Amazon. Right now, you can uh, go there and just punch in either Black Cordite, White Snow, or Nate Granzo, and you should be able to find it. Um, if you can go through my website, nategranzo.com, that has links. And then uh, if you're interested in a paperback copy, I definitely advocate going up to Haven Bookstore in Big Lake. She has print copies that are available there. And, uh, and if you can hold out for a couple of weeks, we are planning a launch party at Hayes Public House in Buffalo. And that'll be Saturday, March 2nd at 7 p.m. And we're doing something kind of fun there. It'll be uh, booking a beer night. So the first 50 people through the door can get a free paperback from me and a free beer i'll, I'll buy your first beer wow yeah, <laughs> yeah. and good. a little bit of nepotism going on there because uh uh kendall and his band are going to be playing that's oh. right oh. yep well you know it, it's good. a it's a perfect fit i think they uh i've long been a fan of their music and um group decision does great work but that that sort of informs that same period that time period the swing swing band yeah. ambiance so Yep, and uh, yeah, throw on your flat caps or your flapper outfits and come on out. I think I was gonna uh, say I had talked I talked to to Pugs about it, and I think that I think he's advocating dressing up in that time yes, period. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He loves a good dress-up day. <laughs> he does. He really does. And so everybody put their spats on and their uh, whatever else and, and come on down. Bring out your 1920s uh, sedans. and uh, <laughs> There you go. you go. And hopefully the weather will be a little more cooperative by then. I, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm well, hoping. this has been an anomaly this year. Mm. so That's true. Ma- that's they true. make no promises. Yeah, they'll, they'll par- we'll, we'll party on regardless. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, great to uh, talk to you, Nate, and uh, great success on the book, uh, Black Cordite, White Snow, Minnesota Prohibition Thriller, and hopefully we've kind of whetted your appetite for it here, and uh, congratulations. Uh, I hope it's a great success. Much appreciated. Thank nice you for having me Nice to talk to you in on. person this time. Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. I appreciate that, and it's great to see you. All right. <laughs> we will talk again uh, in the future, and we'll have another KRWC Book Club for you next month.